1939, Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger formed The Archers, a collaboration that would result in 13 films, some of which The Thief of Baghdad, The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, A Matter of Life and Death, Black Narcissus, The Red Shoes and The Tales of Hoffman are now regarded as amongst the greatest British films ever made. In 1957, the duo decided to go their separate ways. Powell's first film after the partnership ended was Honeymoon, an English-Spanish co-production so scarcely remembered, it did not secure a British release until 1962, some three years after its premiere in Spain. As for Powell's next picture, the deeply disturbing, highly provocative and slyly humorous psychological horror, Peeping Tom, it suffered an even worse fate. Released on April the 7th, 1960, that date has since proven to be a black day in the history of British cinema. The critical reaction was so hostile, it effectively wrote the obituary on Powell's otherwise celebrated career. Derek Hill of the Tribune wrote that, the only really satisfactory way of disposing of Peeping Tom would be to shovel it up and flush it swiftly down the nearest sewer. Even then, the stench would remain. Not to be outdone, Len Mosley of the Daily Express declared, I have carted my travel-stained carcass to some of the filthiest and most festering slums in Asia. But nothing, 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 neither the hopeless leper colonies of East Pakistan, the back streets of Bombay, nor the gutters of Calcutta, has left me with such a feeling of nausea and depression as I got this week while sitting through a new British film called Peeping Tom. Matters got even worse for Powell when the film's distributors, Anglo Algamated, decided to pull it from theatres, and in a state of complete panic, the owners, Nat Cohn and Stuart Levy, sought to sell off the film's negative. Thus, Peeping Tom slipped from public view, and although Powell would survive to direct five other films, his reputation never recovered. Every night you switch on that film machine. What are these films you can't wait to look at? What's the film you're showing now? Why don't you lie to me? I'd never know. You would know at once. Take me to your cinema. Yes. A lot has already been written about how all the early critics failed to grasp what Powell was trying to do. But rather than present the case for Powell's defence, I would prefer to focus on how the film has come to influence, in an unexpected way, subsequent generations of filmmakers. What's the matter? You bums forgot how to kill people? Doesn't your work mean anything to you anymore? It's the car, right? Chicks love the car. <laughs> well, you know, I don't really broadcast it. Guys don't like it when you know more about cars than they do. Throughout his long career, Powell engaged with several celebrated cinematographers. George Perganal, who received an Oscar for The Thief of Baghdad, and Jacques Cardiff, who was similarly honoured for Black Narcissus. Not to mention giving an early break to Jeffrey Unsworth, who would later go on to light 2001 before winning Oscars for Cabaret and Tess. But I would like to focus on the man who lit Peeping Tom, Otto Heller. Heller was born in Prague in 1896, in what was then the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Drafted into the army to serve in World War I, Heller's career with a camera began rather momentously when, in 1916, he was assigned to film the funeral of Emperor Franz Josef. By the time that war ended, Heller found he had been bitten by the cinema bug, 
and by the time Europe went to war again in 1939, he had amassed over 150 credits on films produced in his homeland, Germany, France and England. And it was in England in 1940 that Heller wisely decided to stay. Very few of the films Heller worked on before settling in England are noteworthy, but during that time he honed his craft, proving his acumen across a variety of genres and styles. Then in 1952 he jumped aboard the Hollywood swashbuckler The Crimson Pirate. Gather round lads and lasses, gather round. You've been Shanghai aboard for the last cruise of the Crimson Pirate. A long, long time ago in the far, far Caribbean. Remember, in a pirate ship, in pirate waters, in a pirate world. Directed by Robert Seedmack and starring Burt Lancaster, The Crimson Pirate not only marked Heller's leap into the big league, but also his filming for the very first time in colour. The transition was no mean feat, as the discipline for lighting in colour differs profoundly from lighting in black and white. Filming in colour, it is the colour that helps define the object, while the black and white format demands that the light define the object. Added to that, the preferred format back in the 1950s was Technicolor, a process so complicated that the company insisted on sending their specialists out onto the sets to help the directors of photography. The only thing was, the specialists often got a little bit power crazy dictating the spectrum within which cinematographers could not only light, but also the colours they could use. Why? Because their aim was to make Technicolor look good, and not necessarily mesh the format with the aims of the directors. The thing about this scene is I must have some comedy in it. Now you do understand, darling, don't you? You see, that instead of taking the first trunk, I want you to ask to see a red one. Then when he brings that, I want you to look around and ask, excuse me a second, darling, for a white one. And then when you bring the white one, then you ask for a different one. Well, this one. The blue one. Three years later, in 1955, Heller lit the classic Ealing comedy, The Lady Killers. And while for almost all of that comedy, the humour and colour are perfectly in sync, when it came to the rear projection shots, the lab got their calculations totally wrong, and everyone ended up looking like they'd been coated in green slime. It was the sort of thing that might have damaged a career, but fortunately, within months, Heller was serving on Laurence Olivier's adaptation of Shakespeare's Richard III, a film that boasts one of the most glorious deployments of Technicolor in the history of British cinema. A horse! A horse! My kingdom for a horse! In 1965, Heller was honoured with a BAFTA for his work on Sidney J. Fury's adaptation of Len Dayton's 1962 spy novel, The Ipcris File. While Albert Broccoli and Harry Salzman had turned Ian Fleming's dark and disturbed MI6 agent James Bond into a splashy, globe-trotting, bed-hopping franchise, Salzman had opted for a different tone with the Harry Palmer series. Palmer didn't drive fast cars, stay in five-star hotels, or deploy clever gadgets. He used the underground, lived in a Notting Hill bedsit, and the nearest thing he had to a gadget was his Curry and Paxton Evan glasses. Casting A. Morton Michael Caine in the lead, Salzman recruited Heller as cinematographer because he had recognised Heller's preference for noir, draping dark shadows about the set and then splashing rich colours between those shadows. For audiences who expected their spies to be in colourful and brightly lit rooms, Harry Palmer delivered a very different view on the Cold War world. What did you do? Oh, it's very complicated. Seems to have impressed Ross. Well, impressed me. Boys, he got me by the short hairs for it. 
Still, it's better than two years in the nick. The food's terrible there. But for me, Heller's greatest work came in 1960 when he lit Peeping Tom. What Heller delivered on that film was a high contrast, heavily saturated look, which suffused a very lurid plot. A filmmaker who is a serial killer who commits his murders with a camera. Heller embraced the aesthetic of the emerging pop art movement, creating deeper shadows which resulted in velvet-like blacks. Then Heller adopted colour separation, typical of under-the-counter magazines, to deliver hectic reds, marion blues, emerald greens and yellow so frenzied they could easily induce hay fever. No doubt Heller's palette was aided by his having shifted from Technicolor to the even more expressive Eastman Colour film stock. It was the unique ECN1 process that allowed for high contrasts and more vivid colours. But Heller didn't stop with colours. He opted for Dutch tilts, with the light coming from either high or low sources, creating sinister highlights and deep shadows on the faces. After its critical evisceration in 1960, Peeping Tom survived in a state of ignominious neglect for well over a decade. Screening so rarely, it was more spoken of and rumoured about than actually seen, and even then only on worn out fuzzy 16mm prints. All of which secured for it the questionable status of a midnight underground movie. But Powell's reputation began to revive in the late 1970s, when American masters Martin Scorsese and Francis Ford Coppola sought to honour the maestro who had so inspired them. In 1980, Coppola appointed Powell as director of residence on his newly created Zoetrope Studios. Here are Powell and Coppola conversing for the 1981 BBC documentary A Pretty British Affair. I don't know, I've always been a, a sucker for film studios. You know, when I first came out here and, and found myself in Zoetrope Studios, it, it, it was absolutely wonderful to me. I felt as if I'd come home again. Well, of course, uh, I think in uh, the degree that which we've tried to restore that is just so that I could get a chance to, to be involved in such a place. Yeah. You know? Because where else would you go? Powell's rehabilitation had come about because, in 1979, Scorsese had helped finance an American re-release of Peeping Tom, and its screening had an almost immediate impact on Hollywood cinema. For instance, Brian De Palma's Blowout, where the first sequence mimics the opening moments of Powell's film. Beyond that, you cannot avoid the way Blowout cinematographer Vilmar Zygmunt saturated several scenes with the deep red lights. As for Scorsese, here is Thelma Schoonmaker, who has edited every one of his pictures since Raging Bull in 1980. Four years later, Schoonmaker married Michael Powell. Filmmakers become so obsessed, and Scorsese says that he he uh, always wonders why that image he has in his mind, sometimes he can't get exactly on the screen the way he wants it. And Mark can never, the reason he goes on killing is because he can never get the right shot, which is a very uh, strange comment on filmmakers. And then there is Coppola's musical, One from the Heart. That film may have been a failure, but look at the colour palette and study the way master cinematographer Vittorio Storaro 
painted the screen, and you will see just how much of an effect Heller's work had on him. Storaro and Coppola had already collaborated successfully on Apocalypse Now, and buoyant from having survived that near disaster, Coppola once again had grand ambitions for an admittedly extremely modest story. His aim was to deploy an anti-naturalistic lighting scheme, using rich tones to exaggerate the character's already heightened emotions. Little boy blue, come blow your horn. The dish run away with a spoon. Home again, home again, Saturday morn. And never gets up before noon. Ironically, One from the Heart itself received a critical mauling, its box office failure throwing Coppola's glittering career into freefall, and ultimately resulting in the collapse of Tsuichope Studios and Coppola later filing for Chapter 11. But Storaro is undoubtedly one of the most influential cinematographers the art form has ever seen, and in 1990 he revived his interest in pop colours when he collaborated with Warren Beatty on what is still one of the very best comic book adaptations. I'm on my way. Staying with comic book adaptations, when Joel Schumacher was approached by Warner Brothers to take over from Tim Burton on the Batman series, Schumacher won the job by daring to take a 180 degree turn from Burton's Gotham City. Back then, Burton's aesthetic was clearly influenced by German Expressionism. So much so that Batman Returns looks like a colour film made in black and white. What Schumacher suggested was to camp everything up, and what resulted was a glittering canvas. Lit by Stephen Goldblatt, the frames come painted with heavily fluorescent tones, and his work on Batman Forever earned Goldblatt an Oscar nomination. Still quite the exception for superhero productions. Staying in the 1990s, study the then emerging style of mayhem specialist Michael Bay. His high contrast, colour saturated images for Bad Boys, The Rock, Armageddon, Pearl Harbor, The Island, and of course the Transformers franchise, shows just how Heller's lighting scheme and colour palette has percolated into the most unexpected of places. It's my turn now. For all that, Peeping Tom is undoubtedly a very disquieting experience, telling the story of a filmmaker who is a serial killer and telling that story through the filmmaker's very own camera. Yet it does display other virtues. Scripted by Leo Marx, the premise magnifies an unsettling aspect of cinema, what Laura Mulvey would some 15 years later label the male gaze. Perhaps those same critics back in 1960 were unable or unwilling to recognise the film's premise. It is an unfortunate irony that within six months of Peeping Tom's release and withdrawal, there came another film from another English director which also focused on a serial killer. But where the public was denied the opportunity to see Peeping Tom, Psycho pulled in audiences to the tune of over $50 million, half a billion adjusted to inflation. 
A variety of reasons can explain why Hitchcock's film succeeded where Powell's had failed. But really what it explains is that when it comes to appreciating films, quite often we're better off ignoring critics and paying attention to the filmmakers.